Okay, I'm uh, Jeffrey Rickman. This is my channel, Plain Spoken. I do interviews sometimes with interesting people, very different people. I've done a lot of interviews. I've, I've interviewed uh, African United Methodists. I've interviewed uh, almost seven-foot-tall United Methodists, like last week. Uh, if you haven't seen my interview with Jason Sutfin, that was a good one. Um, anyway, I've got another amazing guest. I really like my guest, uh, Jeff Pospisil. He is the new CFO of the Global Methodist Church. He is uh, been with the United Methodist Church for a, some for a long time, and we're going to get some of his history. But he has a unique perspective with respect to church finance, which I know makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over sometimes, but is super important. Jesus talked about money all the time, and so it's really important for us to, to consider the knowledge and insight of people like Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for being willing to join me today. Glad to be here, Jeffrey. Yeah, um, you're... Um, you're not unfamiliar with the world of YouTube and podcasting. You have your own YouTube channel, and I'm going to try and plug all your stuff. Um, uh, audience, if, if you like Jeff's insights and you want him to be a consult for me more than today, then make sure to reward him, follow his stuff, engage him in, on, in the areas that, that he's engaged in it, and pray for him, because I, I think Jeff is, is doing the Lord's work. But uh, tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel. Yeah, you know, um, I kind of joke that I'm the world's most popular uh, Methodist financial YouTuber. So, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't take much. Um, but <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it was true when I had 100 subscribers. Now I, I have like 1,000, but it's still yeah. something. Um, but really, I started my YouTube channel right before the pandemic because like most accountants, I don't really care to get a lot of phone calls and everything from people. I like to hole up in my office. And so I thought, I'm just gonna start up my YouTube channel and that way it'll answer the questions that I don't wanna to have to take. So, and it was funny, that's how it kind of worked is people would call in and they'd say, oh, then I just looked up at your channel and I found the answer. So I didn't really have to talk to them. Anyway, but I started it in October of 2019. So, uh, and I just, uh, I've been thinking about it for years and years, and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden you had churches wanting to know PPP loans, wanting to know um, how do you take an offering when you don't have, can't meet in person, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's mostly financially related. I did, uh, during the disaffiliation process, I did spend some time doing the difference between the Global Methodist and the United Methodist, uh, but, but mostly it is stewardship or sometimes it's into QuickBooks or, or stuff like that. So it's whatever I'm interested in or whatever people have asked me questions on. So, yeah, a lot of really helpful stuff, stuff that, um, you know, it's really hard to push through as a pastor because like for me, I think I'm more interested than most, but even I, like as soon as it goes to a certain place, my eyes glaze over and I have to intentionally make myself care, intentionally make myself push through it, and it really is helpful when you've got a face and a voice to look at that's leading you through. You can hit pause. You can rewind. I, I think it, you've put out a, a, a number of excellent resources, So, uh, and that was before you joined the GMC. This was just, uh, you, you made yourself sound selfish. Uh, I did it so I didn't have to talk mm -hmm. to people, but I, I think actually if, if you're being honest, it's because you want to equip oh, local yeah. churches for ministry. Well, and what I've noticed so we've tried to do we've done workshops forever in the when i was at the dakotas umc trying to do workshops well they only take place at one specific point in one specific geographic right, location yeah. and chances of you going through 
a need in stewardship or policies or whatever at that specific moment in that specific location where it was next to nil. You know, right. so then all of a sudden you can put out a resource when people want it or need it, mm -hmm. it's there for them. And that's what I appreciated the most about having that channel. Again, it was out there when people needed it, because what do you do? I mean, most of the people, um, our generation and younger or even older, what they if they got a question, how do I take an offering when I can't have church? Mm -hmm. They're going to Google it right. and they're going to YouTube it. And I always try to do follow things. I mean, I try to be as practical as possible, try to show my steps, because even like when I'm setting up QuickBooks now, I want people to see the buttons I'm pressing, you know, and right. see the check marks I'm checking and all that kind of stuff. Because just as an accountant, it's just hard to find really uh, detailed, good information. So a lot yes. of times it's really generalized. Yes. So. Yeah. I totally identify. Well, I just love that. Usually what happens when someone becomes an expert is they forget what it was like to be a novice. And then it just becomes like, how can you not know these acronyms? How can you not know this uh, the software program? And it's really great to have people who remember what it was like before they knew what they knew so they can grab your hand, take you by the hand, lead you where you need to go. So, um, And you're going to be continuing to do that in the Global Methodist Church. Uh, before we get to your professional record um let's just figure out a little bit who you are you and i've only spoken briefly on the phone and over email a little bit i know more about you than perhaps most but uh where did you grow up how did you come into the united methodist church how did you become a methodist um whatever things yeah. are pertinent for understanding who you are and, and why we can trust you yeah so i born and raised in middle of montana central montana by more montana uh, my mom and dad uh, had a farm, so we had wheat and, and cattle. And since we weren't Catholic, we were Methodist. That's just, our town had 200 people in it, seven people in my graduating class. So wow, um, yeah, I was valedictorian and the fastest <laughs> kid in school. So. <laughs> anyway, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, so went off to college. Uh, met my wife in North Dakota, Jamestown, North uh, Jamestown College, great college. Anyway. Uh, ended up getting stuck in Montana because I married a North Dakota or stuck in North Dakota because I married a North Dakota girl and we landed in an, another Methodist church again one of the things is we had a good experience with a Methodist church back where I was from mm -hmm. and so that was our priority I mean we didn't I, I don't think we thought as much about denominations at that time but it, at least you know it's just like if you had a good experience with the McDonald's mm -hmm. you go to McDonald's when you go to the next place oh so, sure anyway fantastic pastor um kermit culver i'm just gonna throw his name out nobody maybe people know him maybe they won't but anyway fantastic pastor so strong on especially stewardship teaching and for me as a chief accountant i mean for me i i really think that was one of the pivotal points in my life when i accepted tithing as as something that you were supposed to do and i just even remember being convinced that we were supposed to work towards tithing and uh, and eventually I, I started seeing that, you know what, I could draw out this plan to tithe for as long. I actually put a formula on my pledge card. That's how bad it was. You know, it was like, I'm going to give you 10% of my gross income minus this, minus this, because I, we gave to other charities, you know, and I figured that, that counts anyway. But eventually it just hit me that the Lord wanted me to tithe and I had to do it. And I just had to cut the check and the, the math didn't make sense. And that's when it hit me that Jesus knows math. So, I mean, he actually fixed it where I got raises that I shouldn't have gotten. Or I don't know if I shouldn't have, wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. 
and it fixed the math. I got promotions, and and I was and again I was in state government. It's not like a place where you just get promotions and raises all the time. It's anyway. It was just interesting how I took that step of faith in tithing, and and it really did strengthen my my faith and set me on a course to where I was the church treasurer at the time at the age of. Uh, 24 the church wasn't huge but about 250 to 300 people in worship attendance um again fantastic pastor and uh eventually i saw these announcements that they were looking for a conference treasurer for the dakotas i didn't even know we had a conference office i didn't know we had a bishop i just knew we sent checks somewhere and they did something so anyway this is how i was loose i mean i was united methodist but i was mostly connected to my local church Mm -hmm. so i mean that was the highest priority for me is the local church so eventually i saw that announcement i asked my pastor kermit i said what do you think of this and he says yeah that's a great position you you could retire there so and so i applied and i for whatever reason i was only 29 years old at the time they hired me and uh so they hired on this evangelical young idealistic guy that uh, yeah it and ended up serving for 14 years with the dakotas conference as the conference treasurer and it, great years we did a lot of good work we so I, I i i'm probably getting into the weeds a little bit but but i mean one of the things that i i remember is I'd only been in fantastic United Methodist churches, ones that were growing, ones that were bursting. At the, and I loved our theology. I loved reading John Wesley's sermons. I loved le- learning more about him. I tried to pattern my life after John Wesley in a lot of ways. Mm. And um, when I got there, I just remember the very first time I looked at our conference statistics and I was like, holy cow, we were down two to 3%, you know, in worship attendance. How are we losing? <laughs> You know, it just hit me. How are we losing? Uh We have the greatest theology. We have a a great plan for uh, deploying pastors, all this kind of stuff. How are we losing? Mm -hmm. You know, and that to me was one of those turning points. Um, So one of the things that I probably spent the next three to four years telling people that we're losing, basically. I put together a a database. You know how normally the statistics are all in a a journal. Uh, They used to be. Now that I like that UM data they have. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but but it used to always be in a journal. And so I, I put 74 years worth uh, since 1974, since 1974 to current. I built out a database. I all of a sudden knew our history more than most others just because I had all right. the data there. Yeah. Even though, again, I was from Montana. I wasn't born and raised in this. I, you know, I uh, well, I I wasn't I wasn't in the whole conference denominational. Right. Yeah. I conference treasure yeah you so. weren't you weren't uh born and raised and bred and and uh conditioned in order to be a conference bureaucrat you had just focused yeah. on being a disciple and then come into the conference bureaucracy with a very different lens than a lot of people in conference bureaucracy have exactly I, and very much libertarian in a lot of ways i mean some of that is again we had great pastors and if i could unleash them and if they had more money in their own pockets to do the ministry uh, mm. that the churches did, I, and again, if they have the solid theological background, mm-hmm. I, I really don't see how a church could not succeed, whether that's growing numerically or growing deeper or something like that. I mean, it's just, I really didn't see how a church, and so the Dakotas at the time, we were in the same decline as every other conference. So mm. two to 3% every year we were declining in attendance and membership and churches closing, all that kind of stuff. 
and you look at it and I used to show these great graphs at uh, annual conference. I, so I actually would get sometimes standing ovations after the budget report. So this is kind of the nerdy thing, but it was because I love showing them the data, uh -huh. you know, and trying to make it as clear as possible. This is where we're going and this is how it's working out, you know, and I did try to make it as understandable as I, as I could, but especially then paying attention to those results. Cause we went from a, a typical declining conference to being one of the fastest growing. I mean, we would grow by one to 2% every year in worship attendance. Really? So, I mean, that was fantastic. I mean, again, we have no natural advantages here in the Dakotas. Yeah. I mean, we're spaced off. We have some churches are literally the only United Methodist church for a hundred miles in any direction. So, well, we and, have to camp out on that. We have to. So, I don't think most people know that the Dakotas was growing when the rest of us were shrinking. Are you so? Are you aware of any other conferences that were growing at that time? You know, there would have been some like the Central Texas and North Georgia. Um, again, they. I'm I'm going to say they have more advantages because they have people. <laughs> so I mean, they. So do you think like they had a growing population in those areas oh, as a growing well? Growing population and a lot of population. Sure. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, but in the Dakotas, it, it, there's a stagnant pause. It's not growing or shrinking, right? Yeah, I mean, we're 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 growing in population, but again, it's it's people coming in to the oil fields, they're coming in immigrants, and okay, and um, different people. I, but mostly, we're an aging population. Mm -hmm. um, we're not growing nearly as fast as any other. And again, it, it's the Dakotas. We had at one point, I think, about one point three or 1.4 million people in North and South Dakota. Wow. So, wow. I mean, compared to Oklahoma City, it's a lot bigger than the Dakotas, right? So, so what do you think, do you, what's your theory? Why did it grow? So when I first got there, there was, I never, I didn't know what IRD was, you know. And Institute for Religion and Democracy. Uh, yep. uh, what they wouldn't be, they would be a coalition, a think tank, uh, uh, an advocacy group. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I, you know, now I, you know, I follow uh, John Lapras and, and some of these other ones. I Mark find Tooley. them very interesting. Yeah. But they were almost a curse word when right. I got there. They yeah. were, the, at the time, the, and I, I, I you know, I'm not saying any, I, they, they're good people. I'll, I'll, I'll make that qualification. If I, anything sounds bad, I don't mean it bad. So. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go but, on. But with, but so we had a very, you know, in the Dakotas, we're uh, more conservative. The laity are more conservative, like most other ones. But mm -hmm. then our leadership at the time was primarily very liberal. Sure. Um, so it didn't reflect the laity. And so what happened, so I was one of the first evangelical people uh, on that joined this new leadership group. Yeah, that was in 2008. And then we started adding more and more so that we are usually about 50-50 evangelical conservative types. And then the other part would have been regular, you know, either moderate or slightly, you know, even in the Dakotas, our liberals are not usually all that liberal. I mean, they're mostly centrist, but, uh, but they were solidly evangelical leading about half of them. And then the other half were moderate or cent or maybe a little bit left leaning. That's so, really interesting to me because if there had been an increasing conservative representation at the upper levels of conference leadership in other places, I think there would have been a big pushback in an organization within the liberal churches to, to maintain a hegemony. Uh, do you think they were just asleep at the wheel or do you think that they really bought this big tent stuff? That's just so interesting to me. You know, 
so I think this that's a really good question. I, here's what I, I can only guess. So again, I started putting out the data. And at the same time, there was a, we called it a Romans 12 task force. You know how we like to do task force. Sure, yeah. Try to fix things. Of course, yeah. But, but we came up with the thing is that the main goal of the conference is to equip and connect the local church. So it, be, it, it And I bought into that 100%, and I still buy into that 100%. And the people we brought in bought into that 100%, that our only job is to equip and connect the local church. We And we changed the apportionment formula at the time so that it was a tithing model. So we knew that if the churches didn't prosper, we don't prosper, mm -hmm. you know, which again, mm -hmm. normally you just set the budget at, at what it is and you bill it out and you, you just, you focus on collections. Right now we had to focus on prospering um, the churches. And it was just an interesting mix of everything we were doing at the time was focusing more and more on the success of the local church, even down to the portion formula, uh, where we really did want to, yeah, we really did want churches to feel like they had more authority and more, because they we didn't build them. This was the most interesting thing. So I remember the very first uh, year after we did the apportionment formula change, I went mm -hmm. from billing out our 240 churches. We actually had a, a better participation rate after I stopped sending them a bill and they had to calculate it themselves and send in the check themselves. I mean, I think they appreciated the trust that we gave them. So again, they we showed them trust. And I think they trusted us then. Yeah, so it, a lot of good things going on. Um, Board of Pensions was all in line as well. I mean, we tried to everything we could to maintain good benefits, but um, uh, but controlling costs. So I mean, we set up this funding plan. And I got to tell you, I think it was 2021. This was probably the height of it. Uh, 2021, churches are trying to come back online, trying to get more involved. We ended up sending out, I think it was $40,000 per full-time pastor to churches, $40,000. So I don't know what that would mean for your church. Pastors themselves got $10,000. Wow. Um, so so if you're a full-time pastor, and then, we, of course, if it was, it was prorated if you're a part-time or whatever, but each church got $40,000 that had a full-time pastor. Each charge had $40,000, and each pastor. So, again, it was that idea of let's hit the ground running and let's go ahead and do everything we can to equip our church because normally the – the normal impulse would be to hoard sure. and to keep. And yeah. we're going through a denominational split. We should save this. And yeah. again, it was even one of our more liberal pastors um, uh, who who pushed it that said, we should give this money back to the churches. Yeah. And it was just awesome. So, yeah, that's really exceptional. I wonder, I wonder if any other conference... I don't even know if there's a single other conference that views itself as um, beholden to local churches to equip them rather than local churches are beholden to the conference to support its ministries, because, of, the, of course, there is a Book of Discipline language that indicates the, the fundamental unit of the United Methodist Church is the annual conference, and it very much sees local churches—I mean, it does say in the Book of Discipline that is the place where discipleship and ministry happens, but even so, uh, generally speaking, it, it seems to me that annual conferences see themselves as the ones not not only who organize it all, but for whom all this is being done. So as a lot of local churches are wanting to depart, you'll hear conference staff, bishops, and, and uh, cabinets say, well, we have ministries that need to continue, so these local churches need to continue paying 
even if they don't want to. And and to people like me and perhaps you, just be like, you've you've misunderstood the directionality of how this needs to go. Our job is not to support you. Your job is to support us, and you gain legitimacy by how well you do that. And so you you put that on trial in the Dakotas, and what you saw, at least in your context, was when you set rightly the directionality of those relationships, you oriented the – and by say you, I, I don't mean you, you personally. It seems like it was a collaborative effort on the part of the totally, totally. Uh, people there. You, when you oriented things rightly – not only did that result in financial well-being, but it resulted in growth on the ground level. It created a healthier, holistic culture in your conference. Does all of that sound like totally. I got it? Okay. And it was, I mean, and again, I think some of this comes from me being um, a local treasurer first, you know, and so I had those experiences where I had those frustrations, always going out. I mean, as a, as a tr conference treasurer, I was out in churches maybe 15 to 20 Sundays a year, you know, and sometimes it'd be, well, not, sometimes it'd be just preaching. Sometimes it'd be setting up their QuickBooks mm -hmm. or sometimes it, whatever it would happen to be an audit. They actually, you know, this was the most interesting thing. This is when I knew they trusted me. I, people would invite me to audit them. You know, again, that'd be like inviting the IRS to audit you. <laughs> so, but they wanted some assurance. I yeah. had churches that would give me their, um, their online accounting system password to help them fix something and then i you know again such a high level of trust uh -huh. um, but again we i think we tried to reward it i just so another example is we in the dakotas i don't know if they still do this uh, but when i left the last couple of years we did table easy so you know t tables one two and three sure i thought yeah. What are the we're talking the about the statistical tables statistical that tables local churches have to report on I don't know like 120 150 variables that change year to year in the church uh, around attendance and giving and, and a couple other things it's it's very uh, not fun to compile this you have to do it between January 1st and 31st every year. Um, but it's really useful for having that information and tracking things out long term. So we're glad it's done in retrospect, but in the moment, it's so hard. So you designed something to make it easier to go through that? Yeah. So, I mean, two things. First of all, in the, I didn't realize it was the discipline that it was supposed to be due January 31st. So I always made it due February 28th because as an accountant, I, I know my W-2s are due January 31st. I don't want to mail, deal with all this stuff. Well, I, this this thing that I'm not really, yeah, I didn't understand it enough. So I, I pushed off to February 28th. That was my first executive decision. But then after the pandemic, people were deciding, I remember meeting with the denomination, all the conference treasurers, GCFA, which is General Council on Finance and Administration. Mm -hmm. uh, we were meeting and, and the debate was, do we even collect statistics? You know, because pastors are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. and. And then people would say, well, we got to have statistics. And uh -huh. I, I was, a, I said, okay, what I have here is we've done this on a selective occasion when pastors are struggling getting it in. I give them table easy, which is just one page front and back of the most important questions that I actually want to know. I don't really care about most of the other stuff. Sure. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it's the membership, it's attendance, it's small groups, children, that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the things that I look at when I want to tell if a church is healthy or not. So it, it was, again, one page front and back, the only the most important questions. And we decided to do that. Um, one other conference, I think, followed suit with us. But it, and it was interesting because 
we'd all kind of agreed here. And Bishop O, by the way, I can't say enough about Bishop O. He was our bishop for a little over eight years because of the pandemic. He got extended, but he did a really good job. He was very of the same mind. I mean, how are we going to help the churches? How are we going to, um, yeah, he, he did very well. But uh, yeah, we, we just sent that out. And we had about three or four churches that, that the pastors were upset that we weren't collecting all the information. And so my, again, some of this stuff in the bureaucracy, you had to work your way around it. So mm -hmm. I sent them table EZ and I said, by the way, the full tables one, two, and three, they are on our website. You are free to fill those out if you want. Very so, good, yeah. I mean, I tried to, again, in the bureaucracy, sometimes you got to cover your base. Sure. Um, and so we made it, oh, funny how 97% of our churches <laughs> filled out the short form. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know what to say about that. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. But you still collected the information that need. Yeah, as as you're talking, I'm hearing clarity about what matters and what doesn't, where priorities are, how things need to be oriented in the right direction, and how, um, you know, uh, so I've heard you say, and I want to know if it's a both and or if it's either or or some combination, but, like, it seems like the theology matters. You know, you're focusing on when I first uh, entered into bureaucracy, the IRD was like a slur, and, and we got more right-leaning people in, and that seems to have led to some health. Uh, but there's also just administrative and organizational health where there just seems to be, um, as, as you look at the United Methodist Church on every level, there seems to be just this sclerotic buildup of, we've always done it this way, we're going to continue doing it this way, even if we're losing year after year after year. And, and it does take people coming in and saying, no, the structure does not fit the mission, let's reorient, let's 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 change things to be in better alignment. So how much of it do you think is theological? How much of it do you think is administrative organizational? Do you think it's a both and? Do you think one is more important? Yeah, you know, I want to say they probably tie together the theological as well as administrative. Um, because I, so when I look at the administrative part, I just, I had some arguments with uh, pastors about, um, well, it's one particular pastor about um, I, it was unconstitutional, right, to, to postpone general conference, right? Yes. I mean, you have to have one every four years. Yes. There's, there's no there's no provision. For, yeah, there's no. Yeah. So I, I remember visiting with this pastor that was uh, very. Uh, so I would sometimes bend the rules, kind of like I said, with table easy. And he would always be my check and kind of double check if I had gone too far, more or less. But we mm -hmm. had a number of arguments on these things. But I just remember visiting with him. Well, we just need better policies for the next pandemic. And there seems to be for for the next pandemic, the idea that the policy uh, policies will fix our world. We don't need leadership so much. We don't need uh, policies will fix things. Yes. And, and so the, it's almost a misplaced faith again. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that, that as a libertarian that hit you in just the right place, you know, because oh, for yeah. libertarians, um, uh, over overreaching government or even ecclesiastical authority really just is not great, and there needs to be more integrity on the grassroots level so that you can deal with problems rather than looking above for someone else to solve your problems. And it's so interesting, too. I mean, this has just occurred to me at the same time, so it's not a fully formed thought, mm -hmm. but um, when you think of the more liberal people, uh, Minnesota, we were paired with Minnesota for a while. Excellent, excellent policies. I mean, I, I, 
how they did everything, how they set up their systems, just, I mean, they have everything fleshed out. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we were fast and loose here in the Dakotas, and, uh, <laughs> but that's just how we were. Um, but then again, the, the more liberal progressive theology, isn't it that we are um, the, the Imago Dei, that we have original goodness is what they focus on, yet you have so many of these policies to keep people in line. Why do you have that if you, you believe that people are basically good? In their mm. innermost nature, they are, are good. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, for me, again, I, 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 I believed in freedom per- personally because uh, even if you give a bad person rules, they're going to do the opposite. I mean, so it doesn't necessarily keep them in line. Uh, so it doesn't really solve your problem anyway. But then you give a good person some boundaries or whatever. It's just going to help them know where to focus their efforts. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, but it, that was just the interesting thing is that, that you say that there's this innate goodness of people, yet you want to have all these different rules to regulate all these people. So what, what is that about? Yeah. So, yeah, there, there's, you, we would like to think that there is a way to do church that is detached from modern political theory. And yet um, you really can't. And that's not to say that, that the way we do church needs to be a slave to modern political ideologies. But if we cannot, if it's, if it's just verboten to even see how all this maps on, then we're really tying our arm, hands behind our back, you know, as we're really trying to do something hard. So what, what should be, you know, I, I'm of the mind that the church should not reflect the state, but one of the things where the church does, the United Methodist Church does reflect the, the, the state is you have a, a, a federal authority, but you also have states under it that have a good deal of leeway as to how they execute the orders from the top. And what, what you can do is you can look at each other and look at what works and what doesn't. You know? And so if the system worked, during those years where North Dakota was growing, the people at the top would have been saying, hey, we need to look at North Dakota. What are they doing that's different? What do they believe that's different, or how is that being enacted on the administrative level that's different? And is that something that's replicable from context to context or not? With the rise of progressive theology, I, I, I think that sort of analysis is already just not possible because they are so into the uniqueness of every given context that something that works here doesn't even work here. So that's why we have the Christmas covenant thing where, you know, for the, for the Africans, you know, maybe it wouldn't work for them to be cool with gays, but to do ministry in America, yes, we need to revise our sexual ethics. And we're just, you know, conservatives are going, wait, what about this truth thing? What about this this way that the church is supposed to look and behave throughout the world at every time. And they're going, that, that doesn't even make sense. Progressives are. They're saying, we, we need to tailor it for our context and do what it takes to reach everybody. It, to which you and I would actually agree, like, yes, we are called to reach everybody, but we're supposed to be countercultural. We're supposed to yeah. push against the norms and ethics of our, our time. And so I think a lot of people, as they look at you and they, they look at a finance person, I don't think most people understand that finance people can have deep theological convictions. You know, I think our, our caricature of finance people is as long as the, the numbers add up, they're happy. But that's, that's not you at all. You're, it seems that your fundamental predisposition is theological in nature and that you've been able to align that with a love of good fiscal practice as well, which... 
I mean, that just seems so biblical to me. I mean, Jesus spoke so much about money. He didn't talk about spreadsheets and actuarial tables, but he did talk about um, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he meant that very literally with our, our money and our wealth and our finances. So, and you've already talked a good deal about tithing and stewardship. Um, and, and I do think it would be good to camp out on that. I, 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 think, I think a lot of people were, were getting anxious about GMC versus UMC and how should we be aligned and what's good Methodist doctrine. But I think it's good to just refresh ourselves in good biblical doctrine around money. Um, so let me, uh, I know just a little bit. In the Hebrew, the word for tithe literally means tenth. And so historically understanding um, a tithe was understood as a literal tenth of whatever income you get by whatever means you get. But of course, once you get to the New Testament, there is not a mention of a tithe. Rather, on the day of Pentecost, the church was born, and for the first several years, we're not told how many people actually liquidated their assets and gave 100% of it to the church. That practice seems to have ended pretty early, but tithing remained normative as literal giving of 10% um, up until very recently. It, it maintained even during the Great Depression when people had a lot less to give, people generally gave 10% to the church. It's only within the last few decades that um, I think the average 10 years ago was about 2.5% of their income. Yeah. And now I would, I would wager that it's closer to 1.5 or 1 on average. So if you can, I don't know if you can briefly, what, what theological, biblical things are important for people to recognize in, in reapproaching their finances in the local church? Yeah. So I'm going to start off. Uh, so first of all, I think people, individuals need to, to get generous giving. I'll call it generous giving, you know, I, which I believe for most people, I think the Lord laid it down as a general rule that a tithe is the normal. Unless I tell you differently, unless the Holy Spirit tells you differently, aim for a tithe. So um, and, and a lot of people make an excuse, you know, net or gross or something like that. Just give a tenth of something. So anyway. That's, that's something else. But uh, one of the scriptures you brought up is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, I always say that is a promise when I preach that. And again, I, a lot of pastors don't like to preach about giving and money, so they brought me in. So I, that's what I specialized in. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you give, and that'll draw your heart towards that. Um, so I, I, that, that to me was the most powerful thing. And then when I saw people that I remember, again, this is under Pastor Kermit Culver in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, when I saw that, and I knew as a tre treasurer that the people were tithing or working towards tithing, it just completely transformed it, everything. I mean, everything. Our church was more generous than ever. I mean, our church, we would take Christmas Eve offering and they would just give it away. You know, sometimes it'd be like $40,000, which is, again, a significant amount. That would have been 10% of our budget about at the time, maybe a little bit less, 8% maybe. But it was just fantastic to be able to see that, how when people got the giving right in their own lives, how that affected their own leadership. So, I mean, for me, I would never, I, I mean, I told churches this whole, all this is that uh, look at their giving before you put them in leadership. Look at their giving before you put them in leadership. Oh, yeah. Um, that should be one of the base criteria because you can tell. Um, I used to, I had a, 
a financial secretary that told me I can tell more about a person's faith by looking at their checkbook register than I can about anything they say. Yeah, you know. let me. So I took a, a course with Horizons Ministry, which I think is based out of Arkansas, but they're a financial ministry. And one of the things they said is, if you have a banker in your church, that that doesn't matter. You, if you want a finance chair, look at a person who tithes, not at a person who works professionally with money. And and yep. I think notoriously in churches, bankers typically give far under ten percent if they give at all. Um, and so what we're looking for in Christian ministry is not the most qualified person in a worldly sense. You're looking for a person whose heart is in the right place because diligence flows out of, out of right relationship. Does that, I think that's what you're yeah. saying, right? Okay. And that's really, when I look at my best finance committee that I ever worked with as a church treasurer, one was an artist, one was a CPA, and one was um, a disabled former teacher. You know, and and I also I had a one that was a game store uh, operator, so he owned, or I guess he owned it. But anyway, it was just interesting. Again, their heart was in the right place, mm-hmm. um, and I I do think it colors you. Like if you're a banker, and, and uh, you're on the finance committee, and you're not really giving. Your assumption is that it's it's really not what we're doing is not really giving worth giving to. Right. And so then why would other people give to it? Right. And so we better cut costs as much as possible, versus the other way around and again a lot of that is going back to that scripture our heart had moved in that direction because we were giving there we were sold out you know Mm -hmm. we were literally putting our treasure into the church and into the kingdom of god through the church Mm. so that's fun yeah Yeah, and to find a church one of the things i learned from horizons is nobody wants to give to a sinking ship uh people people want to give and give sacrificially to something that is doing the work of god that you can see and you can feel and rejoice in and uh, you know, I'll tell you, it's got to feel completely different in a church where people are giving the bare minimum of what they think they have to give rather than a church where everybody is gladly participating and sharing the joy and the burden of funding the church. So, Well, and to hear it from, so I mean, this is my best, um, my best story about actually preaching about tithing. So uh, I went to this church once and I preached about tithing because the pastor invited me to and mm-hmm. filled in. And I ended up coming back there like six months later and uh, just for to meet with our leadership. And one lady, she just got on to Social Security and she was telling me, I'm so excited. I just started tithing and it's completely changed everything. Uh, it, you know, and she said, my husband didn't want me to do it, but I did it. And I said, oh, really? That's so interesting. Yeah, I saw you preaching and I knew that you tithed and your kids were so well behaved. I said, if that guy could do it, so, and it was just literally, it was the, the testimony of my kids that they didn't do anything, so. Yeah, we uh, talked about your wife briefly. How many kids do you have? So I have three kids. Uh, I have a, my oldest, he is at Jamestown, where I went, and um, for college, so he, he'll be a sophomore, You don't look old enough to have a college-age kid. Golly, dude. I know. I'm, I'm 44, though, so I mean, I am older than I Good so. for you. Okay. Okay, so you have a college-age young man. College-age. I got one that'll be finishing up her sophomore year, my daughter, and then my youngest is a sixth grader, and so... That's incredible. All, y'all, uh, y'all spaced it out a little bit, but uh, yeah, you can see the end coming. Yeah, I know. It's kind of cool, so... Um, yeah, that you know, even I, so, I'm, I don't know how much I should share this, but my wife and I, we we moved up to to our moved down to Mitchell, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. After our youngest was born, um, 
my wife, she ended up falling ill with myalgic encephalomyelitis. So, I mean, which is basically chronic fatigue syndrome. So, oh, I no. mean, just completely laid up, you know, and not able to really care for her. I mean, she, we had a newborn at the time. So, I mean, she was just like, uh, yeah, the, our youngest would have been like two months old or so at the time when mm. all of a sudden she was rushed to Mayo, which is a big, uh, big hospital type right. of system yeah. here. Whenever there's a big problem, you go to Mayo uh-huh. is how it is here. Um, and really struggled for answers, struggled for answers, got, got a lot of bills and all that other kind of stuff from specialists as we're looking for stuff. And at the time, I, I think about it again, uh, we never questioned the tithe. We questioned which bills we could afford to pay, Sure, you know, but, but we never questioned the tithe. Yeah. And, and it wasn't, and I think part of that was, again, our, our heart had already moved so far that direction. And my wife, you know, she's just been awesome through all this. I can't say enough. Her name's Betty. So if you, if people want to reach out to her and if you think her, her story is inspiring, but up until just for almost a decade, she was just so greatly limited, you know, and her world became like our, our house. And she wasn't able to go out to anything besides the occasional school event or, or um, medical appointments. So Mm. doctor's appointments. So, I mean, it was such a difficult season. And right now she's having a, she's her her health has improved dramatically i mean so just phenomenally she's going to be going back to uh get her master's degree and she wants to go into counseling and all this kind of stuff but i always think about that during that whole season when i just remember having a stack of bills kind of like that and Mm. i was and you know deflating especially as an accountant i could do math sure yeah but never questioned the tithe never questioned the giving i mean it, it really didn't even occur to me I, I only thought about it la- later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we just never did think, oh, we should really cut from the Lord in order to make this work. Right. Well, and for so many people, they would hear that and go, that's bad financial policy. He's he's yeah. lucky that they made it out uh, because that was, that was really irresponsible to jeopardize his family's finances in order to fulfill some kind of superstitious uh, notion that God cares that you give him money. God does not need money. You know, I've heard people yeah. like this all my life, but the point of giving is not that the Lord needs it. The, the, the purpose of giving is that we need it. And the moment that my budget completely mobilizes around my wife's health, and my, I love my wife, but the moment that that takes away from what is due the Lord, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so I have yeah. put all of my heart into my wife. And luckily your wife has been healed and the Lord has restored her. But say something happens to my wife and I've mobilized everything around my wife. I've put all of my eggs in that basket that's now gone. And meanwhile, I forsook the Lord. I was not putting him first. I was not maintaining yeah. my fidelity to him. The, the, the purpose of the tithe is to maintain my heart's proximity and to the Lord and seeking the Lord, especially and throughout these other crises. And if that yeah. means that certain crises are exacerbated, at least I have the Lord with me rather than saying, okay, Lord, I've got to deal with some real stuff over here. I'll be back whenever yeah. I've taken care of that. The, the presuppositions behind that are so problematic. I, I just don't think you can even get very close to the Lord whenever you're prioritizing other things over him. Well, in a, does so i mean jesus wants you to give because he wants your heart i mean that's really the the basis of it i mean there's such a connection between your money and your heart that jesus wants you to give because he wants your heart yeah so um 
but then he proved himself faithful. I mean, there, I, I always was surprised at how many times you get a, a big check as soon as you got a big bill or yeah, vice versa. Um, but one of the most miraculous ones, I just remember we were going to go on a family vacation, go to see my family, or I can't remember if it's my family or my wife's family. And the vacuum cleaner crapped out. Like it just quit on me. And I was just like, I was so mad. I was like, we don't have an extra hundred whatever dollars to replace a vacuum. So I chucked it in the, in the garage. And I, I just said, I'll worry about it when I get home. You know, we were going to come back in a week. Guess what? When we got home in a week, somebody, we didn't tell anybody this, by the way. I, I don't recall telling. I, I, I'm almost positive we didn't tell anybody this. I got home in a week. On our front doorstep was a vacuum cleaner just like the one that had just crapped out. Same model, everything. And again, somebody had to be, again, listening to the Lord and decided to drop off a vacuum cleaner on our front steps. And That's you're bananas. like, who in the right mind would do that? But again, it was another one of those ways of the Lord just proving himself faithful, you know? Um, well, I too have a faithful wife. Before we got married, I was a preacher for one year. And I gave sporadically to the church. Just whenever I had enough money to give, I would write a bigger check, you know, um, than 10% one month. But once we got married, she heard me preach on finances, and she said, you need to practice what you preach. We're tithing from now on. And um, yeah. and we have ever since then, and, and we've gotten clarity that, that we need to work far beyond a tithe, you know, that, that we don't need to be living really well. You know, we... we more and more are drawn to like homesteading and living humbly yep. and simply and plainly, which fits with an early Methodist aesthetic. And so we get a lot of joy out of being able to give more to the church and, and offsetting the, the costs that, that we cause. And then, you know, we've, we've started endowments for each of our kids that then go really into cool. the church. And so the kids know that they're participating in the life and work of the church. They're generating money, um, for our ministries and, um, so we're hoping that, that that faithfulness also translates into children that people will look upon and go, well, those Rickmans might be doing something right. I might need, so we're, we're hoping, but ours are, we've got four and the oldest is six. So uh, okay. we've got a ways wow. to go. Yeah. Yeah. You got a long ways to go. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's dive back into big picture things because I've wanted to hear your analysis of United Methodist Church fiscal policy versus Global Methodist Church fiscal policy. I know you can't speak real firmly on this, even though you are the chief financial officer slash treasurer of the GMC. A lot of the culture and practice of the GMC is is nascent, not fully formed, is going to change over time. However, there do seem to be undergirding theologies under both that are different and perhaps different undergirding um, administrative cultural norms and practices. So what can you say about any of that? So I'll speak really briefly about the Global Methodist because I, I haven't even really started my full day on the job there. So, I mean, you look at the Global Methodist as a whole, um, very streamlined. I mean, there is an effort to make the bureaucracy as small as possible. You need you need some administration. You need some bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It just helps things process. I mean, people need their W-2s. People need their paychecks, mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. They need their benefits. So I want to say they had like 10 or 12 full-time employees, period. So, I mean, period. This is a denomination with 2,000 people. I did the math here not that long ago, and it was roughly, what what is that? I think we're we're at roughly one employee, one FTE per 100 churches. Now it's even What's FTE? 
full-time full-time employee. Okay, yep. so and you said we're we're a, a denomination of two thousand people, but I think you meant two thousand churches. Two thousand churches. Yes. Two thousand churches. Okay. Sorry. Yep. Um, so roughly, that's where we're where I think we're going to be at. Versus when I look at the United Methodist, you have one FTE of a bureaucrat per ten churches. And that's in in the GMC. That number is per one hundred. Is one in a hundred. So it's so, one tenth the size of the bureaucratic bloat of the United Methodist Church. Yeah. Now, so surely the, the United Methodist Church didn't start off at a one to ten ratio. Yeah. But over time, there is this tendency to have bureaucratic bloat. So one of the uh, uh, prognostications from uh, people loyal to the UMC is saying, well, yeah, they're streamlined right now. They're just starting. But they're going to look exactly the same 10, 15, 20 years down the line. But the ten, Yeah, and it would have been so very easy for us to want to, um, again, as you're bringing in uh, hundreds and hundreds of churches and pastors, that you should beef up the bureaucracy. And I know those people are working. I mean, Angela Pleasance and Rick Van Giesen and many of the other great people, mm -hmm. they're working very, very, very hard. They're depending a lot on volunteers and other people. But but I mean, again, it's it's the whole idea of we don't want to build a huge bureaucracy for this, this time when it's going to be a season and a very tough season and then have to try to scale it back because it's so hard to scale it back. I mean, that is just, just really difficult. Um, the other thing, too, I remember just even when they said apportionments are connectional funding in the Global Method, it's called connectional funding. Mm -hmm. Got to get that word in my mind. Um, anyway, that it was going to be 2%. And it, it really, it was that bias towards the most important thing is for churches to be financially healthy and sound. Right. Um, and if they are healthy and sound, then we can worry about the denomination. As long as the denomination has, has enough to be able to process churches, process pastors, be able to provide some supervision whatever the bare minimum is, then we're fine and we can go with less. Um, so I, I like that bias again for the local church, even in the funding issues. So, and when, when I, so I, I don't know enough about the Golden Methodist. I haven't even, I mean, I haven't even set up my office yet. So, and I start, I start officially July one full time. I'm going to be working part time through the months of May and June. So we'll see. I wanted a little bit of a summer vacation. Um, so one of the things that I want to, uh, with, with the United Methodists, I think, I don't think they tried to, I, I think it's just very difficult to, to, to simplify. I mean, I, I just think that's a really difficult thing. The other thing too is, um, it's so complex. I, I think about, and I think that's why people were afraid to make major changes is it is a very complex thing. You think about all those different boards and all those different requirements and you got a discipline of 900 plus pages. And um, I, I just remember even like the board of pensions. I think one of the, th the, the, the things that I was most proud about the team that we did is um, we understood it. We set up a funding plan. So we knew if we ever had enough mm -hmm. and because that's one of the things if you don't understand things, you always need more. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. I mean, if, uh, in your own personal life, I mean, you're never content if you don't know if you have enough. Sure. <laughs> so oh, yeah. With, yeah. So, and uh, I think that's the way we were operating. But we set up a very clear funding plan. I mean, it was a color-coded chart. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we were in the red, that meant we need to start requesting more money. But once we – and it was interesting. Bob Rudabush was on the team at the time. Um former district superintendent did a great work again a bias towards the local church mm -hmm. and we actually said if you get so funded 
we have that money for a reason and it's probably to give it back to the church. Mm. <laughs> so, and so we actually said, if we are at 150% funded or over 150% funded, we're going to send everything that we is over that amount back to the local church. Wow. And so that's when we had these large, these large uh, rebates is what we called them. Uh, or we said, we did some other things too, that were kind of creative, a care and concern fund so that we could, care for pastors that had a difficult situation in their church at the same time. So we did a, a number of things like that. But again, it, it was that focus on simplicity that I think helped us. And, but it was so difficult in the, in the United Methodist denomination because there are so many rules and who has read the whole, United, uh, the whole discipline and who could keep it all in their mind at one time anyway. Mm-hmm. And so there, I, I think when there's so much complexity, I think that's what paralyzes you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people try to maybe pretend like they know everything, uh, but they're, they're still operating in fear. I mean, even for me, I, yeah, I mean, it was, it took me four years of being on the job before I understood what pre-82 and how that functioned. So I finally read that. You're talking actuary. about a, a health, health, uh, no, a pension, pension, a pension program that pension was plan. before 1982 that behaved very differently than what came afterwards. Yeah. People prior and to my... Yeah. yeah. And once I became comfortable with that, because that was always such a big, so the pension plan, it always had this huge liability, but also had huge assets. And you just, anyway, we just never knew how much we needed. So you always wanted more. And that was always the thing. We didn't ever wanted to go, well, once we finally got comfortable with it, we said, if we could survive 2008, 2009, that recession, then we actually know what's the worst case scenario. We went right. through the worst case scenario. Yeah. So, but again, I'm kind well, of let, rambling. You, I, well, uh, I, I want to bring it back to my pre- pet peeve project, whatever it's in, that is lack of uh, transparency and financial reporting within the United Methodist Church. And I had an article I referenced with you, and I wasn't able to find it. I Hopefully I'll take the time to find it after this, but it was called Show Me the Money, where the, the hope and expectation is that the global Methodist Church does have very transparent, simple financial reporting. But um, the, the reason I started looking into this was because I learned that a, a couple annual conference has apply, had applied financial reserves to the unfunded pension liability for any churches that wanted to. Well, they didn't do it just for churches that wanted to disaffiliate. They did it for all the churches in their conference. They just had money sitting around, some of which was given prior to 1938 and the previous iteration. Uh, yep. Anyway. They were able to uh, uh, tap into this accounting, look at how much money they had on the books, and then redesignate it as an annual conference, as is their right. But within my own annual conference and the Oklahoma annual conference, they refused to do any of that reporting. There was no line item budget reports, even for the stuff outside of reserves, just in the general budget. There was nothing that they would they would put forth a budget request each year for us to approve a new budget. And then they would do a report on how much money we spent the previous year. But that was it. We did not see anything more specific than that. And so it it seems to me that when you're looking at the principles, at least of the United Methodist Church, it's one of mistrust, a preference for the bureaucracy, uh, a directionality from the grassroots upwards uh, without um, them being willing to show their work or exercise some trust. It's clear that you were able to, to do a very different experiment in the Dakotas that seems to have been quite successful. Yeah, and you know, really the one of the things that, I wanna dwell on that for a Please. second. Yeah. Uh, just uh, that a lot of that pension money, um, what we found out during the 2008, 2009 recession when we were struggling to pay extra large uh, pension bills for our more recent plans, such as MPP, I don't remember what they stand for, CRISP, 
Um, anyway, but we had still had this extra pre-82 money. And so what we did is we tried, we drew it out of the plan. Mm -hmm. it, it was called a swap. So, and I don't remember exactly, well, I do remember how it works, but it, either way, it, it'll, it's beyond. <laughs> but, but basically what we did is we were able to swap and pay down um, another conference's, another conference's pension liability, and they would give us un, our unrestricted money back. So we were able to use restricted money, unrestricted. Basically, it was a way to unrestrict money. Interesting. And so a lot of the, the assets that probably you have, that conferences have, came out of the pre-82 plan. Mm -hmm. So it was it was part plan money, but we pulled it out so we could have a little bit more flexibility. So we could do things like, again, give out rebates to churches, wow. you know, stuff like that. So, again, yeah. it wasn't just building up higher and higher as you have. Again, this is the pre-82 plan, so it was prior to 1982. Those yeah. people are passing away, um, and a pandemic also did not help that population either. So The thing I'm loving about this conversation is I there are so many financial frustrations that you run into in conference finance, and the only people you have to talk about it are people who are already part of the system or people who are outside of it and they're just bigoted against the system. There are not many voices that you can consult that go, oh, here are some solutions to the problem. You know, here are some yeah. things that, and when you try, I mean, to even think about calling a treasurer of another annual conference and knowing the right questions to ask. Um, I mean, most, most treasurers are not very personable social people anyway, you know, so it's yeah. a very intimidating thing. And then which conference do you call? And <laughs> excuse me, what questions do you ask? It just seems like you're a wellspring of, um, not just theoretical solutions, but hey, we really tried some of these and here are the results. I wish I'd known about you a while back, Jeff. Well, and it was fascinating because again, the conference treasures are really fantastic as a group. But again, I think there's, there's a lack of trust in the system, mm -hmm. you know, and a lack of wanting to get down to the local church level. And again, that was always my, my priority. And um, I don't know, have you ever done the working genius? No, I don't even know what that is. Okay, Patrick Lencioni, he's been doing it for a while now. But anyway, it's a way of, uh, uh, it, the, the gist is that to get anything done in the world, you need six types of geniuses. And at any given time, you only have two. <laughs> so oh. that you have two that you're born with. Um, and then you have two working frustrations. And then the other one, you're just competent at. So, I mean, if you think about the stuff that you have to do, I bet you there's jobs that you absolutely hate doing mm -hmm. and that you wish you had somebody else to do it. And yeah. maybe you found somebody else to do it. So, but then you have stuff that you could do all day long, never get tired of it. So uh, I did this during the pandemic and I found out my working geniuses are wonder and invention. So asking questions, coming up with solutions. And then there's two other geniuses, uh, two other geniuses next to our, uh, our, um, discernment and galvanization. So deciding if the solution is good and then galvanizing people around that solution. And then you have enablement tenacity. That's getting stuff done and following it through to the end. So anyway, that's how I'm wired as wonder and invention. So, I mean, mm. I like to throw out ideas. I like to, and I was at a, and again, as an accountant, I'm not just by the books. Most of the accountants, I think, are enablement tenacity. <laughs> Tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to get it done. So, I mean, I can get stuff done but I really relied on my other team. The, my, the rest of my team were enablement and tenacity. Yeah. And then I had some great, um, I think of my board of pensions chair, Elaine Roberts. Um, 
she was a great galvanizer. And I had a lot of people with discernment. I always had people with discernment around me. So, I mean, but, but at least at, for me, I got to throw out all these ideas and probably 90% of them, nothing happened with them. You know, never went forward. They weren't that good. Uh, but then the, some that actually went forward, it, it was really cool. And I had that freedom in the Dakotas. And, um, and I, that's what I hope for the Global Methodist too. I, again, yeah. I'm kind of a libertarian. Yeah. Give people freedom, give them good resources, insight, direction. You know, and I think especially when you look at our bishops right now, you got Bishop Webb, Bishop Jones, very deep theologically. Um, yeah, and if they focus, I remember we had Bishop Jones once teaching, uh, and he was just teaching on um, uh, what was it? Uh, the fallen nature, you know, of, of, um, what do you call it? Original sin. Yeah. And I was just thinking, wow, we haven't had that teaching in a while. And we had some pastors that were just like, are you telling me that a little kid is born with sin? <laughs> it was like, you're an elder, uh-huh. you're a second generation elder. Uh-huh. You have kids, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this is, I don't have to tell you, you have four kids. You didn't never had to teach them to say mine. You never had to teach them <laughs> to misbehave. So. Yeah, the 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 interesting. I think it was uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau who came up with this theory of pristine man not being sin sinful, and um, he had several children, all of whom he put in the uh, adoption system. He orphaned them out, and they all died. Um, so that's the price of not reckoning realistically with human nature is we well and you can how how are we treating our children and our culture as we continue to deny the fall um so there's there's a direct uh causative relationship there that we haven't been able to reckon with in the modern west so that's a sermon for another day but i do think um the the thing that the the only i I mean i want to talk to you for forever honestly but the things that i know we need to cover are um addressing in some kind of earnest, honest sense the the brokenness in the United Methodist Church, because it was clear that you constructed a good collaborative, cohesive unit, at least in the Dakotas, that has fractured because of, um, well, yeah, maybe I'll ask you, um, do you think it's because of internal pressures that would have caused it all anyway, because it's it just don't work? Or do you think it's mostly outside forces that it, it maybe could have worked if, if outside forces hadn't intervened? But then I also, I know I want to spend time on um, potential threats to the global Methodist church with respect to finance and culture and administration that you and I will, will pray that the GMC protects against. So th- those two being the things, I'll leave it to you how much time we spend on each of those topics. Yeah, when I think about like the Dakotas UMC, Again, we had a fantastic team, very diverse, um, and and it did fracture. I mean, it, there was a time when we were, well, we thought of a couple things. One of the things is we thought, can we become an autonomous conference? You know, we thought if we could break away from the, the UMC and become our own, just own, like like there are autonomous conferences out in like South America. Sure, Central yeah. America. Yeah, we talked so, about potentially trying to do that, and then it was outlawed by the Judicial Council. Yep. Yeah. And that was one of the frustrations. I mean, you always ran into roadblocks. I mean, that was what, and that, that was the frustrating thing with the United Methodist. But, but, and we were working towards then even becoming a federated um, conference in a way where we would share the conference center and share some conference center staff, especially mm-hmm. finance and administration. Um, because those, yeah, it, 
the thought now of us working together like that, I mean, that's almost unthinkable now. And But it was literally a year ago that that was the main idea is how do we share things going forward? We're not that far apart. Um, but if I look back at it, I think, uh, so Bishop O, I, I'm going to put this on Bishop O. He said, uh, he gave us the direction uh, and set up a task force. Again, that's the United Methodist thing mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Um, that we were to, uh, I, I'm not going to phrase this right, but basically work with every church and every pastor to help them find their place. So every church, every pastor. So really uh, solid, solid way to think it. And yeah. he recognized the split far more, far quicker than I did. I mean, I really didn't accept it until like 2021 that we were going to split. Um, well, when we actually saw people starting to split, it was painful. They, I mean, instead of them saying, okay, you're finding your place, mm -hmm. good for you. Just like when your kids are going to be going off to work, uh, graduating eventually, you're, it's good for you. You found your place. You can't be in my house anymore. You know, that's all good. Mm -hmm. um, but instead of us being happy that they found their place, whether it's UMC or GMC, it felt like they were just being rejected. Mm. And I think there's some of that psycho psychology is that um, people, instead of properly mourning the loss of, of the, the student moving off, you know, or the church moving out, mm -hmm. um, it ended up becoming maybe a bitterness and an anger. I, a lot of times I hear people say they're angry um, about this. And I thought to myself, why would you be angry that they found their place? I mean, mm -hmm. I could see about being sad and I could see about um, not wanting to, to, to not see them all the time, but um, just a lot of angry. And I, again, I think they, they see it as a personal rejection, but also the other side there too, there's a, and I don't know how much this fits in there. There, there are some that I would consider like progressive uh, Christians, which are, you know, much farther left than normal. And they see that as, okay, we're weakening the, the, the bureaucracy and we're weakening the policymaking thing and we're not going to be able to do as much now of the stuff, um, well, the real work. It's that and we are giving license and liberty to our enemies. You know, these are yeah. people that are uh, causing gay kids to kill themselves, you know, and yeah. here we're letting them separate and have their own money and assets that they built under our umbrella. Um, it just seems so clearly wrong to them. Well... And there are, and I remember being in a debate with a uh, United Methodist elder, and again, it dwelled about the pastor more than the people. So uh, the pastor built the church, the oh, pastor yeah. did this, okay. and now we're betraying the pastor, so-and-so. And I'm like, no, I, you know, that's, it's just a different focus on what... That's when you can tell that people don't even read their Bibles, okay? You know, yeah. yes, Apollos watered and I planted, but it's God who gives the growth, all right? I, I yeah. thank God that... You know, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you, it's just so clearly written for things like that, and people just, they can't apply the Bible to themselves. <laughs> That's so yeah. crazy. Well, <laughs> and I'm going to say this, uh, and this is also going to sound mean, and I don't mean it to be mean, but it might be applicable to some people, but before I was saved, I thought I should be a pastor. Mm -hmm. So because I thought, man, you get up on Sunday morning, people got to listen to you. Isn't that a cool gig? So <laughs> anyway, I got saved and I never thought about that again. So anyway, uh, but I do wonder about some people, if it's their pride, and I'm not saying they're not Christian, not saved. Some of them, who knows? But anyway. God gets to say it, that. We don't have to. Yeah. But they're, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably the truth too in the global Methodist too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, but they're, 
there can be that tendency that um, the position of pastor, I mean, it's a very important position in the church, rightly so, but it, it's, um, it could also be feeding your pride too, which is also one of the main sins that's the most concerning. So, I mean, it's such, it's such a, it, it's, it is a place, an honored position, but it's also can be a source of pride too, that you think too much of yourself or think, yeah. I think so, James warns, uh, not many of you uh, should be teachers because you're going to be held to a higher standard. So I, I'm not yeah. sure per capita if there are going to be many preachers in heaven. Uh, so I, I just think that the bar is so high and so many of us make excuses as to why it is that we don't have to measure up or help our churches measure up. And so I, I don't know, I'm not, as a preacher, I'm just not very impressed with preachers. So, but I, 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 I'm getting a little bit back on the topic. I think I was off, but a little bit, but that's why there's such a personal connection there because mm-hmm. they started thinking, I am the church. This is a reflection of me. Oh, if yeah. the church leaves and I had served it or my grandfather had served it or my father had served it yeah. or whatever else, this is a reflection on what they think of me. This is a part of me leaving. Yeah. So I don't know if that's, that's uh, maybe that's why there's this anger in there, but, yeah. um, but it is, they are experiencing a very deep loss, and for them it feels like a betrayal. And in, so, in the Dakotas where you all got along so well, it's just weird because you built this foundation of mutual respect and appreciation, yeah. and yet whenever it came to a moment to reflect on oneself critically, there was this yeah. great backlash that it's, um, I, I haven't followed real closely what's going on in the Dakotas, but um, I think I recall something about a, a retired pastor of some esteem being brought up on charges recently. Um, yeah, and it's really, um, and, and it's potentially coming up on charges. But again, someone to a secret meeting, or not a secret meeting, but it, you know, didn't, wasn't told the purpose of the meeting, brought in to the bishop, it was a Zoom call, and just told he had to be there no matter what. And then they were told, you know, well, you're too involved with the Global Methodists, and uh, we might bring you up on charges for a lack of loyalty. You know, and for me, I, the pastor had done so much. I mean, for the, the, the good of the kingdom, uh, excellent recruiter of pastors, had helped a lot of churches prosper. Um, and, and it is sad. I mean, even myself, I, I just think about a year ago at this time, I was being celebrated for leaving. And then, you know, I go about and I normally all I did was tell churches the difference between the Global Methodist and United Methodist, similar to what I, I, I have all that stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not, not like I'm hiding anything. Um, but then even a couple months ago, the bishop put out a letter against me saying I was misinformation, you know, and it was just like... Um, oh, what, what misinformation are you promoting, Jeff? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it was some of our grievances, you know, so a lot of the times we tried to stay above it all, but uh-huh. I mean... We, we were concerned that people were thinking, because the Dakotas has often been different, mm-hmm. but we've seen some alarming changes. And so a change that we saw was a change in our retiree health policy. And again, I'm the, I'm the one that actually wrote the policy, so I know what it says, uh-huh. and I know when it's been changed. Yeah. So I, I was part of the team that wrote it. I'll give credit to them as well. Uh, there was an issue with the church and the foundation and then there was another issue with a friend of mine, and this is actually what drew me into the Global Methodist more and more. Mm-hmm. So I had planned to already leave the, the Dakota's conference, become a professor of accounting over at Dakota Wesleyan University. Fantastic university, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody's listening to this, send your accountants to Dakota Wesleyan. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, 
And, uh, but uh, I say that uh, one of my friends, she was the chair of the board of ordained ministry. So a pretty important position, yes. evangelical. Um, her church and her were deciding on whether or not to leave the denomination. She was threatened by some of the more progressive ones and she's never told us who it was, but they, they threatened her that at the clergy session, they were going to put forward a motion to, to force her to resign. Mm. So, and they, they told her this the night before. So you can imagine that. I mean, imagine that you knew something like that was going to happen at your church, right. for example, yeah. you know, yeah. that they were going to force you to do that. She lost a night's sleep. She went from Williston to Sioux Falls, which is the difference between going from South Dakota to Texas. Okay. So that's that's the that's the length that she drove to get there, and now this happens. Um, mm. Just completely heartbreaking because again, she's everybody that she's ever worked with. They said she's faithful no matter what, whether you were liberal, progressive, or anywhere in between, uh, liberal, progressive, conservative. <laughs> so yeah. that's the other one. Um, anyway, uh, and for me, that was a sign that you know that conservatives really don't have the same seat at the table that right. they're yeah. and. and so this is probably the most disappointing thing that some fringe pastors did this is bad. Yeah. But then the conference, what they did um, is they basically, uh, they said that this person resigned and they also said, if you're thinking about uh, leaving, perhaps you should resign from your leadership position as well. Mm. So, you know, to me, that was that email kind of set the tone that sure. you know, yeah. maybe we aren't going to work together. Maybe this isn't a, there's not a seat at the table. We want your money, but we don't want you to have a voice anymore yeah. as much anymore. And, and it is sad because we had worked very well together for about 14 years. Yeah. So, yeah, that is sad. Well, and uh, yeah, a lot of people looking at stuff like that will go, yeah, those, those were some radical small number of pastors that are misbehaving, but that doesn't represent the rest of us to which you and I would maybe say, um, well, until you stand up for us, it really feels like you're with them, you know? And so yeah. when the follow-up on that is, we're not going to talk about these extreme people over here, and we're actually going to kind of stand behind the, the outcome of it. Well, at that point, it just seems like you've got your attack dogs, and then you're, you're with them, but you're just not doing the attacking. Yeah. And for the most part, I mean, again, the conference, even when it looked like we were maybe in bed with the progressives, we were I mean, we were tra trying to help the church as much as we can, but our bias, I, I mean, that's where, again, you need strong leadership. And at that point, you know, I, I don't know what would have helped, but I mean, if I was at clergy session and somebody did that, I would say, if you were part of that group, you need to come forward and confess. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get to continue until somebody confesses. Yeah. And that's it. You know, yeah. it, it, something like that to show some kind of support for right. those that are conservative minded, just even... Uh, and I don't know if that would help, but it, it really did. Clergy session is the number one place where clergy's hearts are stained with sin uh, because year after year they're voting people, they're approving people into ministry that do not belong in ministry theologically. So it's just this place where you get everybody to lie and lose integrity. Uh, yeah, that's, I'm going to do a whole segment on that soon because I just think, you know, the whole, when you read the liturgy of that section, as it was designed, it's supposed to hold clergy accountable. You're supposed to be booting people out and turning them down, but so often it's a rubber stamping on uh, uh, hating on our book of discipline. I just, I got nothing good to say about it. I've 
I'm so glad I don't have to sit through it anymore, at least in the United Methodist Church. Let's, let's transition now to talking about the GMC because it's, it's new and a lot of people are pouring their hopes and excitement into it. And, and I'm not because I'm a grump. You know, I'm, I'm going to join. I'm going to be ordained. I'm hopeful, but I'm not going, oh, man, we're going to get it all right. And, and it's all going to be great. You know, I, so far as I'm concerned, the evil one loves entering in and ruining things. And unless we guard ourselves properly, we can easily fall prey to any number of maladies. What are the things that, that you're praying about, hoping about, that the GMC will guard against, um, be, uh, not in anything theological, but just administratively? Yep. Well, and it does overlap theological. So what, what's on your mind as you're praying for this body that you're now serving? Yep. So I think um, a couple of things. I, one of the things I always lift up is the apportionment rate, connectional funding rate. You know, that I think if you start seeing them they set that hard cap in there at six and a half percent. Hopefully that's affirmed or maybe even set lower when the convening conference meets. So I think if I was considering the global Methodist or I am global Methodist, watch that. Because again, that tells you where your heart is. And, and, and I, I do think there's a connection there is um, it also makes you think about how important your work is versus the work of the local church. Mm -hmm. And, and again, so if you see somebody mess with that, um, the, the, the tendency to do a policy rather than do a relationship with people and to have really great leaders. So if you start seeing the book of discipline, uh, I can't remember, doctrines and discipline, if you yeah. start seeing that just blow up, that's a, that's a concern. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I saw that, um, if I want to fix people with a policy rather than a relationship, uh, that's, sure. that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, um, for transparency, you know, one of the things, um, one of my early mentors, uh, he, he affirmed this, is that the, the best way to hide information or one of, the best, one of the best ways to hide information is actually to provide more detail than people can actually Appreciate. digest. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. and I just remember that was one of the things. So, I mean, if you're not seeing reports that are digestible, like uh, you should be able to see from me uh, a one-page balance sheet a one page um, income statement, and then some kind of explanation, you know, and, and that's a, what I typically did is I tried to make things as, as digestible as possible. There should be some regular communication. I don't know what it'll look like, but sure. maybe quarterly or something like that. Yeah. It'd be nice to have an update on here's how things are going. Here's where, how the money's being spent and just proving we're accountable. If you guys are going to give 2% of your income, you know, we better be doing something to help make it worth your while right. so i mean so uh, anyway that's so some kind of a, a transparency and reporting again not hiding things in the details mm -hmm. but trying to lift up what's important make it as easy as possible to digest so if people are asking i have no idea what you're what this means mm -hmm. i mean i should be responding and trying to refine that perfect that all the time yeah yeah uh, yeah the the policies and then the apportionment amount so i those are the three things i would keep an eye on if i was global methodists are considering it so that's all very helpful and that that coheres with a lot of things that uh i personally believe i can't really ever sometimes i can anticipate pushback but i don't really know what the pushback on that would be i i know that we live okay so the Progressive narrative is that we need experts because normal people are not smart enough to understand things and principles are not enough to govern one's life. You need to actually understand details and dynamics. And so 
I'm, I'm sympathetic to an argument that says if an expert cannot boil things down to be understood by a layman, then they actually are not an expert. Um, yeah. That's the kind of experts that, expertise that we need. And the moment that, that um, they're just saying, hey, look, it's just too complicated, you're not going to understand it, that's the moment that, that they're trying to manipulate you and take advantage of you. And, and I, I only have one year in higher ed, but I mean, I've dealt with survey of accounting, which is, again, trying to bring people, teach them the language of business, which mm -hmm. is accounting. So, I mean, I, I have some practice at that, but same thing with, if you looked at some of my old videos, trying to pr explain a pension liability to somebody why does this even exist? What is that about? Um, I did a couple of videos on that. And even yesterday, I was at a, a small church, Virgil, South Dakota, great church. Um, anyway, they, the district superintendent was explaining the pension liability and she used my exact words. So it was like, <laughs> so it was just like, huh. So, but because it made it boil it down to something people could understand, it made it relatable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So I 100% I agree. Yeah. I think sometimes we cover up our our ignorance with language and just right. saying, oh, it's too complicated, that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's because we are not fully experts in order to be able to tell and tell people simply and concisely and make those analogies that might help it connect for them. So. Well, yeah. I I think that's a really great reflection to end on and a, a hope and a prayer to lift up for the GMC that they are able to stay simple and streamlined, um, that they don't fall prey to the institutional forces of bureaucratic bloat and self-justification, um, but that they maintain their proper orientation towards the local church and towards maintaining um, not just the faith that, that was once and for all entrusted to the saints, but the particular Wesleyan heritage that um, just got abandoned and abused within the United Methodist Church. I think these are all things that, that can and should work together, but uh, can easily get corrupted. So I'm, I'm glad that yours is one of the hands on the wheel. I hope that um, Keith and all the leadership continue to listen to you, and I hope they watch this interview. I don't know that they've taken the time yet to understand your principles as you do this job. I think they probably just know that you're theologically uh, friendly, but um, I don't know how many people in leadership have an appreciation for the way that good administration and good theology can and should work together, especially around money. So I, I really hope that uh, you become um, part of one of those making the culture of the GMC, uh, especially as it looks like I'm going to be a part of it. Um, so thank you for your leadership, Jeff, and uh, for taking the time to, to meet with me today. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. I, I don't think this is the last time we're going to talk. Um, We've already plugged your YouTube channel. Is there anything else that we should plug about you so that people who've appreciated this can show their appreciation to you? Yeah, I mean, if they check that out, I mean, again, if they want clergy or church tax or financial advice, go to either my blog, which is jctaccounting.com or go to my YouTube channel. Uh, either way, it's a good way to connect with me. Uh, don't send me a lot of emails because I hate, <laughs> hate email. Uh, but I will respond to him eventually. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, you're probably better off, better off actually either um, connecting with me on Facebook or connecting with me on uh, YouTube uh, through the comments, and I and I'll get back to you quicker that way. So. Right on, right on. All right. Well, um, why don't we end it there, and then um, after after we. Uh, and the feed, you and I will just pray for a bit, and then uh, we'll we'll be in prayer for the GMC and the UMC and, and for everybody caught up in this mess. All right, friends, uh, thank you for 
attending this and uh, paying attention to Jeff, I, I hope you agree with me that his is a very helpful voice. So let's pray that God advances his ministry among us. All right, see y'all later.